Welcome to Cowboys, Badlands, and the Meaning of Conservation, a special production from Inside Energy. I'm Lee Patterson. The federal government owns a lot of land. It's an area that's twice the size of Alaska, mostly in the West, and mostly managed by the Interior Department. Our public lands are unique on this globe. We want to make sure we protect them. President Trump's Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke comes from the West himself, growing up in Montana. And since he started his job, Zinke hasn't let anyone forget it. The newly confirmed Interior Department Secretary showed up to his first day on the job on a horse, of course. Accompanied by several U.S. Park police officers, Zinke hoofed it. Zinke, a former Navy SEAL and congressman, installed the arcade game Big Buck Hunter in the department cafeteria and sports a hunter's vest in his official Twitter picture. But Zinke is more than just a colorful figure in a maze of suited D.C. bureaucrats. He's a potentially transformative figure. Under his watch, the Interior Department is poised to shrink the borders of at least four national monuments and is lifting restrictions on oil and gas development on federal land. We're going to explore who Ryan Zinke is by learning about the man Zinke called his biggest inspiration. And up front, I'm a Teddy Roosevelt uh, guy. Teddy Roosevelt had the courage 100 years ago. The reorganization is going to be bold and look at just as Teddy Roosevelt did. Teddy Roosevelt, our 26th president, he basically invented the national park system and has arguably done more for conservation than anyone else in U.S. history. If the Trump administration's top steward of those lands is modeling himself after the conservationist Teddy Roosevelt, then why is he making headlines for rolling back land protections and for opening up federal land for more oil and gas drilling? Today, we're going to find out by visiting these vast landscapes with Inside Energy reporter Dan Boyce. The following story first appeared on an episode of the podcast Trump on Earth. So, Dan, you and Ryan Zinke have something in common, don't you? Uh, yeah. You're both from the same place. That's right. We are both Montanans, very different parts of the same big, large state. But yes, we are both Montanans. And that, so, so that's where we're starting this story today. Yeah. So um, I grew up in rural central Montana, a little town called Lewistown. And I was back for a friend's wedding this summer, kind of late spring, early summer. And I decided to fit in some reporting while I was there. We'll put them with our yearling heifers. I'm about 45 minutes north of home, and through telling the story of this one place where we're going to go today, we can begin to sort of understand the Trump administration's wider approach to public lands today. And this place where we're going, it's called The Breaks. The land is, it's really rough, it's broken up, it's dominated by a blue-green sagebrush and these little stands of pine trees. And it's really gorgeous. It's really sort of rustic and old westy. When you're there, you do feel like sort of like putting on a cowboy hat, growing out a five o'clock shadow, and just kind of squinting into the horizon. That's, that's kind of the guy we're meeting in this scene. Absolutely. Matt Knox. What kind of a title would you use with folks? Well, rancher. And I guess that's the main thing. So he's a rancher. That's right. He's a rancher. He's a cattle guy. Uh, and he's just driven with me on these rutted dirt roads up to this overlook. I can be meteorologist this spring because it's all you have to say is that there's a 100% chance of wind. <laughs> it's really it's super windy. And so we're up there and we're looking over his vast family property. We're on, on private land here. But if you go north here about probably a mile, 
you'd start to run into BLM. And that, that's why we're here to talk to him. But first, BLM, that stands for Bureau of Land Management. Yeah. When you're talking about federal land ownership, it's, frankly, it's, it's annoyingly complicated. There are all these different land designations that fall under different agencies in different federal departments. It, it's too much. But just keep in mind that each of these different land designations allows you to do different things. Either you can do more stuff, like run your cattle or ride four-wheelers, or you can do less stuff and the land is more protected. Right. And the BLM is underneath the Interior Department. And the Interior Department is managed by Secretary Ryan Zinke. Yep. And Knox's cattle ranch butts right up to BLM land, and specifically the Upper Missouri River Breaks National Monument, which is managed by the Interior. And as a land designation, National monuments are often one of those more restrictive types as far as what people can do within its borders. So earlier this year, the president directed Interior Secretary Zinke to review 27 monuments, large ones designated since 1996, to review these monuments and maybe shrink or revoke them. One of the big reasons was a controversial new monument in Utah called Bears Ears, And we'll get back to that here in a little bit. But the Upper Missouri River Breaks Monument, that's one of the ones under review, too, right? And the review itself, this is music to Matt Knox's ears. He's never been a fan of the Upper Breaks Monument, and he'd be happy to see it go. You know, anytime there's a, a new federal designation, whether it be National Monument or National Conservation Area, whatever they want to call it, it complicates things for us. Creating new rules. For instance, about where and how he can run his cattle. So I do a radio story about this. And when I get to Knox talking about his opposition to the monument, I use this soundbite from interviewing him later in his house. It it starts with me here. He and other ranchers want to manage this land as they have for generations without so much government oversight. We cuss the county commissioners. We cuss the state legislature. We cuss the governor. And we reserve our most of our cussing for the federal government. It's really good. It's yeah. a great soundbite. As far as soundbites go, that thing's solid gold, right? So anyway, so that story airs. And, and I get some nice feedback. But then I get this call. And it's a call actually from Matt Knox. And he's really not happy with the story. Yikes. Because of that soundbite? Yeah, He feels like I took it out of context and and that it made him sound like an extremist. And, you know, we as reporters, we get negative feedback. It happens from your audience, from the people you cover. It's it's part of our job. But this one was different. And and it's because of what he said. He he says, hey, the reason I agreed to talk to you is because you're from here. Like, I thought you got it. Like, I thought you'd be fair to me. Ouch. And, And it made me think there's this stereotype of the anti-government Western landowner. And to be fair, I, I do know people like that from growing up. But the stereotype is not most people. And it's not Matt Knox when it comes down to it. It's not that he's against the federal government. He has to work with the feds all the time. But he has practical concerns about what more land restrictions may mean for him. He wants to protect his way of life on this land. And to him, that's conservation. And conservation is really the core of what we're talking about here. Since he took the helm at the interior, a lot of the narrative from environmental groups, at least, about Ryan Zinke is that he's anti-public land, 
beholden to industry, that he's actively trying to destroy the legacy of his idol, Teddy Roosevelt. It's more complicated than that, though. This is an ideological struggle about the purpose of public lands, one that goes back generations to the real definition of conservation. Is conservation keeping lands how they are now? Is it reverting them to how they were? And what will be used from these lands and what will be protected? If you want to understand Ryan Zinke's views on these issues, you really do need to go back to Roosevelt. Roosevelt is generally regarded as the father of the modern conservation movement. So this is Whit Fosberg. He's the president and CEO of the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. He stands by himself. And part of that is, you know, why is I Mount Rushmore? So Roosevelt really, really loved and promoted nature his whole life, right? Like it wasn't just theoretical. He was an actual avid outdoorsman. Absolutely. To the max. So as a kid, he was an amateur taxidermist. He idolized Charles Darwin and saw himself growing up to be like Darwin one day. He wanted to be a globe-trekking, hotshot naturalist. But it wasn't really until he was an adult that landscapes and protecting those landscapes became more of a priority. So February 14th, 1884, was an unimaginably tragic day for Roosevelt. He was a New York State Assemblyman at the time. He's 25 years old. And on the same day, his mother dies and his wife, Alice, dies of complications after the birth of their first child. Mm, awful. And... And he sort of goes off the deep end. He, he leaves his newborn daughter with his sister, and he just heads off to North Dakota to build a ranch in the Badlands. He writes, Nowhere, not even at sea, does a man feel more lonely than when riding over the far-reaching, seemingly never-ending plains. And after a man has lived a little while on or near them, their very vastness and loneliness and their melancholy monotony have a strong fascination for him. Uh, my friend Colt Gill kind of reminds me of Teddy Roosevelt, so I'm having him read our Roosevelt quotes here. Thanks, Colt. So he heads out there under these horrible circumstances to live this kind of stoic, masculine existence with a bunch of cowboys. You mean he's in mourning? Yeah, and for several years. And historians point to this period as where he becomes the man who would later become the president. I do not believe there ever was any life more attractive to a vigorous young fellow than life on a cattle ranch in those days. It was a fine, healthy life, too. It taught a man self-reliance, hardihood, and the value of instant decision. I enjoyed the life to the full. And again, I, I want to underline the life Roosevelt was leading at the time, this life that really accelerated his lifelong ambition to protect the land, that relationship to the land was basically the same relationship Matt Knox has today. Roosevelt was making his living off of that land. He was raising cattle. He hunted. He fished. He used the land. Yeah, right. It was an intimate connection, and it was a consumptive connection. He, he took from the land, like you say, but he cared for it too. So, Lee, this brings us back to that question. What is conservation? When we set aside land for the public, why are we doing that? 
Some might say it's so we can be thoughtful stewards of our natural resources for the benefit of the people. We're gonna log this forest, we're going to drill this oil, but you know, in theory, we're gonna leave the land as we found it when we're done. This is a multiple use conservation mindset. Then you have those on the other side of that saying these places need to be left as they are. Right. I mean, it's a spectrum, really. And, and on the other side of that spectrum is the idea that these landscapes need to be kept in their natural state in perpetuity, that these lands have intrinsic value on their own. And this is thinking of conservation as preservation. So with Roosevelt, you have all these perspectives. He was a rancher, a lifelong hunter. He was a user of the land, but yet also he develops over time this preservationist streak. And that real awakening as a preservationist comes a long time after his stint in North Dakota. So now it's, uh, it's 1903. Roosevelt's been president for a couple of years, and he takes this camping trip with John Muir. The founder of the Sierra Club. Yeah, and an ardent preservationist. So Roosevelt and Muir, they take this three-day camping trip in Yosemite in California, and undisputably, it's just massively important. I think more than just the most important camping trip in conservation history, I think that could very well and easily be the most significant camping trip in world history. So this wow. is Dan Ritzman. Yeah, uh, he strong words. Uh, that's Dan Ritzman. He works with the Sierra Club today. I think what happened there was, you know, it wasn't like President Roosevelt needed to become aware that the outdoors was really important um, or, uh, you know, these places were special. He clearly already knew that. There can be nothing in the world more beautiful than the Yosemite, the groves of the giant sequoias and redwoods, the canyon of the Colorado, the Canyon of the Yellowstone, the Three Tetons, and our people should see to it that they are preserved for their children and their children's children forever, with their majestic beauty all unmarred. I think what happened was that President Roosevelt got this conservation bug, like he realized that these places needed to be protected, to be set aside for future generations. So what did he do? While he's in office, Roosevelt creates five national parks, which are about as restrictive as it gets on the preservation end of that spectrum we talked about. But he designates land all across that spectrum. He creates the U.S. Forest Service and establishes 150 national forests, which are firmly multiple-use lands. He creates 51 federal bird reserves, four national game preserves, and 18 national monuments. Whit Fosberg with the Roosevelt Conservation Partnership again. When he was president, he set aside somewhere around you know 230 million acres of public lands for the future of people forever. That land, 230 million acres, that's bigger than the states of Texas and Wyoming combined. That's huge. And you really start to see all these different designations become more formalized at this time. And these different land types, whether national park, national forest, etc., they all reflect a different philosophy over how the land is used. How much do we preserve it versus how much do we harvest it for resources? And so this philosophical tug of war, it's still happening today. It brings us back to Secretary Zinke's review of national monuments 
and back to Matt Knox's ranch. It's a good system we've had here over the years. Uh, we get along with BLM pretty well, and they've, I think they've made an effort over time to get along with us. And the environmental groups will try to drive a wedge, obviously, between us and, and the people who manage this land. And so any type of new federal designation causes its potential trouble for us. And that's because every time that land designation changes, it changes that balance between multiple use and preservation. That must make life difficult for Matt Knox. It changes the situation on the ground for his business. Again, maybe it's now you can only graze your cattle on these lands for a couple months or maybe only a small number of cows. They're legitimate concerns. Totally. And, and hey, the change in the land designation may be legitimate too, right? It, it might protect an important ecosystem or a threatened species or something. However, at least with these other designations like National Wildlife Refuges, there are public processes which go into proposing them and setting borders and crafting management plans with stakeholders. With national monuments in particular, it's different. We're following developing news tonight and an uproar in Utah after President Obama today surprised our elected officials and declared a Bears Ears National Monument. And local leaders chimed in unison, some saying Obama is behaving like a dictator. The law that allows for the creation of national monuments is called the Antiquities Act. It's more than 100 years old. It's only four paragraphs long, and Knox believes its authority should be pretty narrow. The original tent of the Antiquities Act was to preserve sites, for example, like Gettysburg or Pompey's Pillar or Custer's Battlefield. The original intent was not to set aside huge swaths of land. Knox argues, as it's been used, this act is enormous power for the executive branch. And these ranchers, looking at the president, you know, all the way in D.C., making these declarations, they get pissed. Here's Utah rancher Casey Black talking back before the Bears Ears Monument was made official. What's wrong with the way things are now? The grazers, the cowboys manage their ranges well. They take care of things. They don't want anything bad to come with their range because it impacts them badly. So they're the users of the land and they're the best resource to take care of it. Opponents like Matt Knox, like Casey Black, they point to the language of the Antiquities Act that a monument is a place of historic or scientific interest, and the boundaries of it, quote, shall be confined to the smallest area compatible with proper care and management of the objects to be protected. So the key phrase there, smallest area compatible. Right, and, and so they look at a lot of the monuments declared recently, these really big monuments, and they say, whoa, 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 these are way beyond smallest area compatible and that recent administrations are setting a bad precedent for the size of these things. Whit Fosberg doesn't buy it, though. Yeah, you know, I've heard that same criticism as well, but, I mean, we would not have the Grand Canyon if Theodore Roosevelt had not set it aside via the Antiquities Act. So it's been used to protect big landscapes forever. And so here's what's so interesting about all this for me. The Antiquities Act of 1906, which establishes these national monuments, monuments Ryan Zinke is looking to shrink down, the Antiquities Act was signed by none other than Theodore Roosevelt. Dan Rissman from the Sierra Club again. 
it's terribly ironic that we have uh, somebody who likes to call up the name and compare himself to Teddy Roosevelt. And up front, I'm a Teddy Roosevelt uh, guy. I think as but they the major thing that he has done in his nine months as Secretary of the Interior is try to undo this act um, that was signed by Roosevelt and to strip protections away from places that were protected using this act. I mean, it's a pretty big exaggeration to say Zinke is trying to undo the Antiquities Act, but I do see the point he's trying to make. In September, Zinke gives President Trump his recommendations on the monuments. It's not public, but that memo leaks to the press. It recommends keeping most of the monuments as they are, but shrinking the boundaries of at least four monuments, including Bears Ears, and loosening restrictions for those and a half dozen others. When this memo comes out, the environmental community erupts. It's full-on assault from environmental groups, fearing these lands will be handed over to mining and oil interests, and they just tear into Zinke. He said he'd fight to protect public lands, wanted to be like Theodore Roosevelt. But since his Washington promotion, he's put our public lands at risk. Mr. Secretary, don't turn your back on Roosevelt now. So, Sally Jewell the interior secretary under Obama, tweeted the Washington Post article, right, saying, quote, Teddy Roosevelt is rolling over in his grave. It's pandemonium. And and then in October, President Trump tells Utah Senator Orrin Hatch he will indeed shrink down Bears Ears. The White House says this will be formally announced during a presidential trip to Utah in December. And there are other indications Trump will follow more of Zinke's recommendations, So let's look at what they actually are. For starters, nowhere does Zinke argue for dismantling the Antiquities Act. He calls it an overwhelming American success story. But he then goes on to make basically the same argument Matt Knox does. That the law is being used beyond what it was intended for. Right. Zinke says no president should restrict access to public land or hurt local stakeholders. He says if you want to make these large land designations okay, But this should be something Congress does through more traditional channels open to the democratic process. And actually, now there's a bill in Congress to do just that. Now, to play devil's advocate to what Zinke's saying, the Bears Ears designation document clearly states that traditional land uses, including grazing, will not be restricted in the area. And the overwhelming majority of those submitting public comment on the overall monument review, they want to keep the monuments just as they are. So we don't want to say that people on the preservation side of the conservation spectrum don't have reason to worry under Zinke's command of the interior, because they do. Now, we tried multiple times in multiple different ways to get an interview with Secretary Zinke, but we heard nothing back from the Interior Department. So I spoke with a reporter who covers him a lot, Michael Doyles with an energy environment news source called E&E News in Washington, D.C. I focus on the Fish and Wildlife Service and endangered species issues, as well as interior headquarters. Doyle's really only spoken with Zinke once since he's taken the helm at Interior, but he's been watching Zinke closely and feels he's getting to know him, get a picture of him. He agrees he's the image of a Western outdoorsman. He's got a, a swagger to him. He, he looks good for the party. He postures himself as, a, as an outdoorsman, and, and it's absolutely true to his character. He's a hunter and a fisherman from, from way back. 
And at the same time, Doyle says Zinke absolutely believes the rules on federal lands are often too restrictive, and that Zinke wants to change that, whether it's increasing access for hunters, reopening management plans for a threatened western bird called the sage-grouse, or expediting oil and gas leasing and opening vast new parts of the Gulf of Mexico and Alaska for drilling. That's part of his, uh, his agenda, very explicitly part of his agenda, to open up the public lands to greater use under the theory that they belong to the public for multiple use. Use for the public and use for industry too. Industry, oil and gas developments and others have more sway in this administration than they did in the prior administration. There's no doubt about that, and I don't think that Secretary Zinke would take any see any harm in that. Secretary Zinke, he has complicated, nuanced uh, views, even if at the same time, industry is probably going to win more battles in his department than it loses. Americans, we are passionate about our public lands, and the debate over that conservation spectrum between preservation and multiple use will continue to be robust. Who are these public spaces for anyway? The people who live right next to and rely on them like Matt Knox? Or are they for those parts of the broader public that want to maintain rare, untrammeled landscapes? It's a debate around which rational people can disagree, right? I mean, without being against public lands or the federal ownership of them. Taking Ryan Zinke as an example of that, you know, Something that hasn't received a lot of attention on the whole National Monument recommendation discussion, yeah, Zinke may be proposing to shrink the boundaries of four monuments, yet he also suggests establishing three new national monuments, a Civil War hospital in Kentucky, the Mississippi home of civil rights activist Medgar Evers, and a large 100,000-plus acre candidate in our home state of Montana, a sacred Native American site called the Badger Two Medicine Area. Finally, Zinke has been outspoken in opposing any effort to hand over federal lands to the states, for instance. Here's a promise the new Interior Secretary made to his employees on the department's birthday. Well, for those that don't know me, um, I grew up in Montana, right next to Glacier Park, and I can tell you, you can hear it from my lips, we will not sell or transfer public land. My home ranch house stands on the river brink. From the low, long veranda shaded by leafy cottonwoods, one looks across sandbars and shallows to a strip of meadowland, behind which rises a line of sheer cliffs and grassy plateaus. This veranda is a pleasant place in the summer evenings, when a cool breeze stirs along the river and blows in the faces of the tired men, who loll back in their rocking chairs, what true American does not enjoy a rocking chair, book in hand. Though they do not often read the books, but rock gently to and fro, gazing sleepily out at the weird-looking buttes opposite, until their sharp outlines grow indistinct and purple in the afterglow of the sunset. That's beautiful. So that land in North Dakota where Roosevelt built his ranch in the 1880s, it's a national park now. The Theodore Roosevelt National Park. The Theodore Roosevelt National Park. And yeah, in fact, it is beautiful country. It's not a working ranch anymore, though. And so if you want to see what that was like, 
you'd actually do better visiting Matt Knox's place in central Montana. The broken, high plains landscape is similar to the Badlands. It's rough enough that Knox still does much of his work on horseback. And he looks over to the Upper Missouri River Breaks National Monument, which Ryan Zinke did not recommend changing, by the way. And Knox worries about that slippery slope to more protections down the road, maybe to one of those most protected designations of them all. And National Park would be a disaster for us. We don't want to be an inholder in a national park and flip hamburgers for people. That's not what we do. It's not who we are. You know, our lifetime investment, and we've raised our families on this ranch, and this is what we do. It's what we love to do. In the end, he wants to preserve this landscape too, just as it is. That was Inside Energy reporter Dan Boyce. And if we didn't answer all of your questions about public lands and energy, please send them over to ask at insideenergy.org. Again, that is ask at insideenergy.org. Answers to those questions could be on a new Inside Energy podcast. Special thanks goes out to Dan's friend Colt Gill, our voice of Teddy Roosevelt. And you know, he's also a mighty fine country western singer. You can find some of his work on Spotify. And finally, a huge thanks to the podcast Trump on Earth for first airing this story. I'm Lee Patterson, and this has been Cowboys, Badlands, and the Meaning of Conservation, a special production from Inside Energy. Thanks for listening. <laughs>